I'm Julia Karkatzel, and you're listening to Think Sustainability. This week, we have a special guest episode from our sister podcast, Think Digital Futures, hosted by producers Caitlin McHugh and Daniel Butler. Think Digital Futures explores how today's technology is transforming tomorrow, from our biology, habits, relationships, spaces, to our place in the universe. You can download episodes from your favorite podcasting app. In this episode, Caitlin explores green walls and vertical agriculture in our urban centers. We'll be back with brand new episodes of Think Sustainability from next week. Across the road from the two SER studios here in Sydney stands one central park, shopping centre and residential tower, whose glass facade is punctuated by swathes of greenery. It's home to one of the tallest green walls in the world at 130 metres high, but projects in Melbourne and Sri Lanka look set to surpass it when they finish construction. Green walls have decorated buildings since the 80s, but the majority of them were built between the late 2000s and now. You've probably seen some yourself. They're becoming a more and more common sight in our cities. But have you ever wondered who maintains these lush green towers? For the most part, it's automated systems, with the occasional intervention from workers when something needs seeing to. In the case of one central park, sections of the green wall needed maintenance almost as soon as they went up. In October 2013, the year construction finished on the project, a water source was accidentally cut, and an unsightly brown patch of dead plants quickly developed. Workers had to replant the whole section, scaling the 116-metre-high towers to do so. The building hasn't required the same kind of mass replanting since, but plants do require regular pruning and replacing, and the hydroponic system that keeps them watered also needs maintenance and monitoring. But what if keeping green walls looking, well, green, didn't require people to head up multi-storey buildings in gantries every time problems cropped up? What if everything that these leafy towers require could be done from the ground? And if we can cover the outside of our buildings in greenery, what about the insides of vacant blocks that sit unused throughout our cities? Today on Think Digital Futures, we're talking about how robots could be helping out in our city's gardens, and what other technology could put more plants in urban spaces. Yeah, it's like to keep the balance between, you know, the lightness of the robot and the kind of um, agility that it is required to have and the um, task it needs to do. We've got these winches that allow the, the ropes to be uh, retracted and extended. We've sort of ended up with a design which uses uh, cables or ropes that are attached to the, to the side of the building and the warbot actually hoists itself up using these ropes. People might be familiar with those um, cable-suspended robots that are quite commonly used within sports stadiums. So you can kind of imagine an abseiler going down the side of a building, but using multiple ropes so that it can not just go up and down, but side to side as well. Hi, my name is Dr. Mark Carmichael, Senior Lecturer in the School of Mechanical and Mechatronic Engineering at UTS. Yeah, hello, I'm Tim Shork. I'm the Associate Head of School in the School of Architecture in the Faculty of Design, Architecture and Building at UTS. Tim and Mark are working on the Wallbot project at the University of Technology, Sydney, an interdisciplinary project with teams working on the mechanics, programming and application of the Wallbot. What the project um, looks at is to build a functional prototype 
of Wallbot, which is an inspection robot for green building facades within the city of Sydney and, of course, and wider community as well. The main challenge at the moment is getting the Wallbot moving the way it needs to, up, down and across building facades. Even though the Wallbot is suspended by four ropes, the system is hanging in six-dimensional space. So four ropes trying to control the robot um, is actually quite challenging. At the moment, they're limited by their resources. Much of the robot's parts have been sourced from hardware stores and adapted for the project's use. We took the MacGyver approach. We, you know, we went to the hardware store and um, got some basic equipment for that and then coupled that with some sophisticated software that was developed by the team. But um, yeah, one limit certainly has been the number of members um, on that and that we um, you know, had a certain limit to the technology we could employ at this point in time as well. It's just the very beginning of the project, and the Wallbot isn't yet ready for commercial use. So we've been able to do quite a lot with not too much funding, um, but a compromise has been that the hardware is definitely not the best. So moving forward, we would be wanting to use better hardware. Uh, it would involve having to custom design you know, some solutions. But UTS has worked on other robots that do see regular use, inspecting other types of infrastructure. We've got robotic systems that are, for example, climbing the Sydney Harbour Bridge, quite a challenging environment, climbing through the cavities of the bridge to do inspection and maintenance there. That's been quite a long project with Roads and Maritime Services. And we've developed, we've gone through many phases and, and completely different projects, actually. So we've had projects that were designed for robots to go under the roadway of the Sydney Harbour Bridge to perform maintenance operations. So we've got robotic systems which can do that. RMS use these robots in part because it's safer than sending workers up onto gantries or down into difficult to access tunnels. But then a later project develops new systems to actually go through the archways of the bridge. So the arches, although they, they don't look that big from a distance, but up close, they're, they're really big. In the past, humans would have to go up there inside of the arches to check that you know the infrastructure is sound, but quite a dangerous job because if something goes wrong, if, if someone hurts themselves, then it's quite a challenge to get that person out from the middle of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And Tim and Mark hope the Wallbot will help in a similar way, making routine inspections so maintenance crews only have to be up on gantries, tens or hundreds of metres above city streets, when something actually needs fixing. But by inspecting it continuously, uh, it can mean that when human workers do need to go and scale the side of these buildings, they can do so in a more targeted approach, you know, so it's it's more known beforehand where on the building do the green walls need to be maintained. So it, it could be more targeted rather than just kind of routine inspection, which may or may not be necessary. So that by itself is, is hugely beneficial to minimise that risk for workers. Sarah Wilkinson is a professor in the School of Built Environment at UTS and another Wallbot project member. She says it's not just the possibility of high maintenance costs that proves a stumbling block when promoting green walls. Developers can be put off the idea entirely by existing green walls which have gone unmaintained. Without regular care, walls of lush, glossy green can quickly turn into drab brown eyesores. These poorly maintained walls aren't exactly good spokes gardens for the concept. The thing with the green wall is it's very, very visible. And if your maintenance regime is uh, inadequate or is stopped for whatever reason, it will become very quickly apparent that something's not right. And so that is a major risk. And as I say, that has been one of the barriers stopping a lot of property owners committing to this because of their concerns about a failure of the maintenance. 
Sarah, and the other Wallbot project members, has ambitions for the Wallbot beyond simple inspection, though. The inspiration for the Wallbot came from a, a technology called FarmBot, which is a horizontal bot that uh, is used in farming. That seeds, weeds and maintains the bed. So again, there's a lot of potential to move into very high-tech food production. This is a little while off yet, but the Wallbot team are exploring the possibilities. We've been discussing uh, adding additional capability onto the Wallbot, such as having uh, a small robotic arm, which would allow it to reach out and to actually interact with the plants. So uh, operations such as uh, pruning the plants, uh, perhaps even seeding or, or weeding the plants. These are the kind of operations that the the workers are currently doing and there's nothing really stopping us from from doing that with a robotic system um it just adds to the complexity of the system and will take some research and development to achieve that but that's kind of where um i'm expecting the future of the project to go as well as the wallbot sarah has an interest in another project that focuses on using urban space for growing plants with potential applications for the wallbot in the future well i've been working with Black Thumb for a number of years now um, in setting up and advising them on the work they're doing with the vertical gardens and the urban farming. There would be potential applications for the warbot to be used in vertical farming. Vertical agriculture hasn't exactly taken off in Australia yet, while some elements, like hydroponics, are already used to keep tomatoes in our supermarkets year-round. Towers of veggie gardens haven't made it into any Australian cities yet. More densely populated, land-poor countries have taken an interest. One of the first commercially viable vertical farms was built in Singapore, a country of 5 million, with around 250 acres of usable farmland. Mel Fife is the CEO and co-founder of Black Thumb, a vertical agriculture company that's hoping to pioneer the technology here in Australia. We grow in a way that's called controlled environment agriculture, which is really about growing inside spaces, whether they be you know, high-tech greenhouses or within buildings themselves, within a controlled environment. So essentially, it's you seal off the space so that you can grow in a, a safe, hygienic, climate-controlled environment. And we grow vertically as well. So if you can imagine taking a traditional farm and essentially condensing that into a small space. And instead of the growing rows being along the ground, we stack them one on top of each other. Black Thumb currently has a proof of concept garden housed in a backyard in Sydney's inner west. Uh, so we've built a prototype farm in the backyard here. It's nine and a half square metres. It is vertical. It's two layers. So you walk in and you've got on the right what we call a deep water culture bed. So it's essentially a large box that's got water and you've got floating plants on top. So there's essentially a floating raft that has holes in it that you put the plants in and then water runs with lots of nutrients underneath it and that what is what grows your plants. So we've got that on the right-hand side, a top layer and a bottom layer, and then we've got a media bed where we can grow more root-bound products and a fish tank and um, filtration devices as well. They're also working on a pilot project, which Mel hopes will start production this year. Um, so that's the very small scale, but the very exciting project that we're, um, we're going to launch later this year is a big pilot farm. So if you consider that our little prototype is nine and a half square metres, we're talking about going into a 520 square metre space. And with that, we will have a very high tech very first of its kind vertical farm here in Sydney. 
Vertical agriculture is substantially different to vertical gardens. Where vertical gardens are visually arresting walls of greenery, decorating facades, looking at a vertical farm from the outside could be just like looking at any old city building until you step inside. You walk into the farm and it's separated into three areas, each at three levels, and you've got what we call the engine room, which is where all the fish live, because your fish are really the, well, they are your engine. They are the ones that provide the nutrients for the plants to grow and so we've got a number of fish tanks holding holding heaps of fish filtration devices and then that all flows down into the three separate growing areas and we're really doing this from an R&D perspective so making sure that you know each space is separately controlled has its own climate we might be growing different things in each of those spaces and we'll be able to grow tons and tons and tons of food um, every every year on this, like multiple tonnes of food. There are a few different options when you're setting up your vertical farm. Hydroponics, aquaponics and aeroponics are the most common. So the first is hydroponics, which people be really familiar with generally. So basically growing in water, you grow with synthetic synthetic nutrients. So you actually have to add the nutrients into the system and you need to balance those out for your particular plant type. And, you know, so it's a really efficient way of growing. But part of the reasons why we haven't chosen this method is because you do need to clear out that water and that's got nutrients in it and then you have environmental runoff. So we didn't want to choose it for that. And also the diversity potential is um, is lower than, than aquaponics in the method that we grow. Another method that um, is used is aeroponics, similar to hydroponics, but instead of it, the plants sitting in a running bed of water, a mist of nutrient-rich water is sprayed on the roots of the plants, and then they take those up directly and grow. Um, so it, it is also very water efficient, um, but similar to hydroponics, you have to put in chemical nutrients in order to sustain those plants. Um, all three methods don't use any type of pesticides, which is a really great outcome. But aquaponics, we choose this because your nutrients actually come from, from your fish. So you grow fish and plants together. Um, so it's a marriage of aquaculture, the growing of fish, and hydroponics, growing without soil. And basically what we do is, is we use, um, that's a closed loop system. So what happens is you, you feed the fish. So the only input that you're putting in from the external environment is what you feed the fish. Um, the fish eat the food and then they do their, do their natural thing where the fish produce waste. And then that waste is converted through a natural process into nutrients for the plants. So they go through a filtration system to take out the solids, for example, that goes into the plants. The plants take up their nutrient rich water directly. So similar to hydroponics. And as they take up that nutrient, they actually clean the water. And then that water goes back to the fish. But why have vertical farming in a country like Australia, where we have so much land for traditional horizontal farming? Mel says there are a few benefits both nutritional and environmental. In general, um, vertical farming uses a quarter of the space of traditional farming, and that's even that's just on one layer. So you're having a 75% efficiency already, but then if you have more than a single layer, so if you stack it vertically, then that number just gets better and better and better. So depending on, on how densely you can grow within a space, that efficiency um, percentage just increases. Because we're growing close to where people live, it's really fresh, it's really accessible, and it's really nutritious because the food hasn't had to go through that long supply chain of being grown hundreds if not thousands of kilometres away, 
being stored, being transported, being stored again, going through various selling points before it gets anywhere near your plate. Of course, Australia isn't going to jump from no vertical farms to city blocks brimming with lettuce and herbs. And Mel says the aim certainly isn't to replace traditional farming, but supplement it. And, and part of what we do is to not play farmers out of the game. Like there's, a, there's going to be a 50% high demand for food by 2050 and farmers are already struggling to meet that demand, not even taking climate into, into the context. So what we're here to do is to help farmers deliver food to people. The Walbot team have the same caveats about their project. They're not looking to replace human workers, but make their jobs safer. It's similar to what we're trying to do with the Walbot here. Uh, like we, we, we don't really f- foresee a future where robots are completely replacing humans at all. These just become a tool, right? a tool like any other tool that still requires a human to, to use or to set up or to, to monitor as it's, as it's doing its thing. Uh, but it just takes that risk away. And it, it means that rather than actually having to scale the side of the building, um, these, these workers can, can have more of the, the job of setting the robot up and like, deploying the robot to do its thing. Developing technology like the Wallbot will make vertical agriculture more feasible in the future. Some technological barriers have been overcome quite recently. For example, one of the major costs in setting up a vertical farm is lighting. In buildings without access to natural outside light, LED lighting is required for the plants to photosynthesize. Mel says there have been big developments in lighting technology recently due to increased demand from another industry. And especially with the development of the cannabis industry internationally, um, the lighting technology has improved out of sight. So not only is lighting more efficient, because that used to be one of the real issues for vertical farming in the early days was that lighting was incredibly expensive and really resource intensive from, from an energy perspective. So it still takes a fair bit of energy to run lights to be able to grow food, but being able to offset that with renewables or being able to just have even better technology, and that's something that we're looking to develop as well as part of Black Farm, is really about getting the most efficient technology in the space so that you can grow as much food of the highest nutrition density as possible. But the main barrier isn't necessarily technology so much as real estate. The urban population centres where vertical farming makes the most sense are also some of the most expensive parts of the country. But the coronavirus pandemic, which has seen many businesses shut down, means real estate is opening up. Vacancy rates in the Sydney CBD went from 5.7% in March to 13.8% in April. Melbourne's went from 5% to 7.6%. Sarah says this could be a boon for vertical agriculture. There is great potential for urban farming either to use vacant buildings in the short term or possibly in the long term. And obviously at the moment with this COVID-19 situation, there's going to be a lot of uh, change in the property market. We have been seeing for a number of years now a decline in traditional retail outlets, for example. So there's been a lot of vacant retail. And so there's an opportunity to have an urban farming set up in a building like that. Commercial vertical farms are a little while off yet, and futuristic visions of block after city block cloaked in living green are mostly restricted to glossy renders for theoretical smart cities. But the technology that could make these farms and gardens of the future possible is well on its way. It is getting a lot more momentum and I think this will be a rapidly changing industry, particularly in the context of COVID-19 and 
despite Australia being able to grow an abundance of food, the reliance on the long haul logistics, that supply chain can really impact people's availability to fresh, nutritious food. And I think this is this is something urban farming, urban vertical farming, something that's just going to continue to grow, especially as cities have really constrained spaces. You need to grow really efficiently in cities. You, we just don't have the luxury of, of acres or hectares of land to be able to grow. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can hear more of Think Digital Futures at 2SER.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Caitlin McHugh. Thanks for listening.